Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, Straniacs. Your old buddy Fearful Jesuit is as busy as a conspiracy-debunking bee. Researching, scripting, interviewing, and producing the shows that will form the backbone of the next year of brand new episodes. To keep you company while we're away, we're resuming our practice of putting out what we call archive presentations, where we break up some of our old, long shows into our modern, digestible format. This time, we've chosen our epic JFK episode, which is one of our favorites. In this first section, you'll learn all about why this is such an important topic for us to cover, both personally and professionally, and get some key insights into the life and personality of the singularly unimpressive three-named gunman who, despite what you may have heard, was almost definitely the only person responsible for the death of the 35th president of the U.S. Please enjoy and expect the second part just a few days from now. Mr. District Attorney, I understand you have a witness you wish to treat as hostile? I do, Your Honor. This witness is as deranged as Lafayette Wawaron, if you understand my French. You know I do, Cher. Yeah, you're right. Well, Judge, I feel like we'd pass a good time interrogating this scalawag up in this here court of law. You mind if I get started? Don't let me stand in your way. Let me just lean back with this here Erster po' boy and hurricane drink and enjoy this here testimony. I call one tremulous Silesian to the stand. Please state your name for the record. It's, it's actually Fearful Jesuit. And I'm starting to regret writing you guys as such broad New Orleans caricatures. Don't worry, though. I'll eventually find a way to blame it on Oliver Stone. Carry on. Ah, Mr. Jesuit. Is it not true that you run some sort of highfalutin conspiracy podcast? Excuse me. Anti-conspiracy podcast. Anti-podcast? Why, gentlemen of the jury... I call your attention to the fact that this is an anti-podcast. Funny word, anti. Sounds like, oh, I don't know, maybe like the word anti-American. Stick to the facts, Mr. Prosecutor. Sorry, Your Honor. These anti-America communists just get me matted in a Thibodeau hen at an East Texas catfight. Anyhow, Mr. Jesuit. Is it not true that the majority of your fellow Americans believe that there was a conspiracy involved in the murder of the 35th president of these here United States? That is unquestionably true. 61% according to a 2017 poll conducted by the website 538. 
But you would expect us to agree with you, and a tiny minority of assassination researchers, that in spite of 55-plus years of public skepticism and a mess of books, movies, periodicals, articles, conferences, lectures, music, uh, uh, them there, uh, uh, YouTube videos, and forum posts taller than the pile of trash they swept off of Boyman Street, all of which say either Oswald had nothing to do with the murder, or that he had a whole bunch of help doing that shooting. You expect us to believe you when you say that boy did all that with three bullets by himself from the sixth floor of the Dallas Book Depository? Yes. But I would also admit that this time I have more of a mountain to climb in terms of proving it to the satisfaction of my audience. I mean, I still think I can do it, but it might take me a little while. No time like the present. I'm going to just take over this courtroom and present my case. Okay? Order! Objection! I ask the questions here. Well, sure, but since you're just one-dimensional characters I wrote for this intro, I'm almost certain you're going to decide you like my idea. Gah! What? What are you doing to my... I do declare that I have no objection to Mr. Jesuit taking all the time he needs in the whole wide world to explain why these here JFK conspiracies don't amount to much more than a hill of red beans. Honestly, this dialogue is like a crime against the state of Louisiana. How about you, Your Honor? Any problem with my plan to spend a couple of hours undoing the damage that Jim Garrison, Oliver Stone, Jim Mars, and about a thousand other conspiracists have done to the real story over the past 55 years? I hereby suspend this judicial procedure to let the witness expound as much as he wants on the excellent reasons not to believe a conspiracy in this here case. Thanks. Finally, the truth about the JFK assassination gets equal time in the court of public opinion. And incidentally, wouldn't something like this have made that incredibly well-put-together yet horrifically dishonest Oliver Stone film a lot better? Or, to quote another brilliant filmmaker and, probably, real monster of a human being, Boy, if life were only like this. And that's why we created this show, where rationality, skepticism, and a sense of humor always win out. Join us, won't you, in our fantasy world composed entirely of reality. Welcome back to The Paranoid Strain. Mr. District Attorney, I understand you have a witness...
Hard port. Fix the mizzen. Ready the harpoons. Okay, I'll bite. What's the tortured metaphor this time? I don't care for your tone, Dana. I'm simply trying to let our listeners know that this is the big one. The Kahuna. The conspiracy Scylla and Charybdis. The Lost Ark. The Maltese Falcon. Golden Fleece. Kaiser Soze. Tyler Durden. Snuffleupagus. This is my white whale. And I'll chase him round Good Hope, and round the Horn, and round the Norway Maelstrom, and round Perdition's Flames before I give him up. To the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Stop it. No one's impressed. Look, I want a little leeway here. This is the conspiracy theory against which we skeptics are nearly powerless. The one who the majority of our fellow citizens, in fact, we'd be willing to bet even listeners to this very show, (laughs) believe in. At least a little. Okay, put your heads down on your desks. No peeking. And only by show of hands, how many of you believe there's at least something hinky in the official story of the JFK assassination. Yeah, we thought so. That's most of you. But for this episode, we've set ourselves the significant challenge of convincing at least some doubters that in spite of all the many, many reasons you have to question the official word of any number of U.S. government mouthpieces, the mainstream conclusion is essentially accurate. Well, I wish you luck. Thanks. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, let's take a moment to acknowledge all of our return listeners and welcome new folks to the party. We all get together every couple of months to explore the rich and varied history of crankery and conspiracy thinking, its origins and effects, and its modern-day adherence. We do this because we have assigned ourselves the job of explaining why your insurance salesman, your dentist, and your shady step-uncle's second-favorite bookie constantly share such ridiculous conspiracy theories with everyone within earshot. I'm Fearful Jesuit, a man, a myth, a legend. With the help of my talented collaborators, I've now spent two full years seeking to help you make sense out of the most offensively stupid ideas your fellow citizens wholeheartedly believe in. Once you've finished with this episode, please feel free to sample the older ones from our podcast feed. From QAnon to Chemtrails, we feel like there's something in there to make every one of you say, But there's no way somebody believes that. They do, though. They really do. By the way, on the months when we don't have a new episode for you, we invite the chads from our sister podcast, Stupidland, to take our sensible, well-researched topics out for a spin. Yes, they end up crashing them into a ditch and setting them on fire, but then sometimes they roast marshmallows. It's a win-win. Please check out those contributions as well. With that out of the way, we return to the subject at hand. The Kennedy assassination holds a truly unique place in American history. Not only was it one of the most shocking and impactful moments of our shared experience, but in many ways it has served as a sort of mental dividing line for millions of older Americans who see our nation, and by extension, their lives, as split into before and after those explosive few seconds in Dallas. As we noted in our opening, the idea of a conspiracy in the murder of Kennedy is a very different thing than most of the theories we deal with on this show. Even conspiracies that make headlines, like Flat Earth, are believed by a comparatively minute percentage of the population. Though if you use YouTube a lot, you're forgiven for assuming that Flat Earthers are thick on the ground. Here, though, lone assassin three-bullet guys like me are definitely in the minority. 
And while we might argue as much as we like that Occam's razor, the preponderance of evidence, and the lack of a coherent opposing theory all make our position the default, it's also true that the average person has been exposed to decades, in some cases entire lifetimes, of a general, low-level hum of doubt about the official explanation of this event. After all, thousands of people have put their entire lifetimes into constructing an endlessly refracting funhouse mirror of mutually contradictory versions of the event, theories whose only point of agreement is that they disbelieve the official story. So, faithful listener, we're asking you to keep an open mind as we examine the Kennedy assassination, its historical context, its aftermath, the way that conspiracy theories grew up in its wake, and how those theories have mutated and changed in the two score and sixteen years since this traumatic event transpired. Also, as the opening may have telegraphed, we're going to use this opportunity to work out some of our remaining teenage angst about a certain movie that you're already thinking of. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Yes, that hokey, irresponsible pile of incredibly well-directed, beautifully photographed horseshit that Oliver Stone dropped on the public back in 1991, JFK. Cast your mind back 28 years ago, when a young and impressionable, yet still quite fearful, Jesuit was in the thick of adolescence, trying on a series of ill-fitting, rebellious poses that would hopefully signal to some, apparently non-existent, group of high school ladies that he was the kind of suave, long-haired, world-weary intellectual in a black trench coat and combat boots they had always dreamed of. There was, of course, the vanishingly brief Ayn Rand flirtation, the ostentatious reading of the Communist Manifesto in the cafeteria, because who cares what those straight-laced teachers think? It was all very sexy. Be still, my heart. Anywho, during various flailing attempts at finding something to rebel against, your host ran smack into Oliver Stone's new, daring, filmic conspiracy screed in his local theater, and bought it hook, line, and sinker. Yes, as much as it pains me to admit, the immediate effect was to convince my young, inexperienced, deeply credulous brain that this was the true history that the man didn't want us to know about. You know those things you did... When you were a teenager, that on occasion your adult brain decides, without warning, to force you to relive decades after the fact, in quick, involuntary, cringe-inducing flashbacks. Oh, this is his version of that. Of course, it all ended well enough, and in fact, finding out what a pack of lies that movie is probably helped mold us into the scourge of all conspiracy theories that we are today. Anyway, welcome to Jesuit's Revenge. We're going to use Stone's film and a number of his wildest accusations as touchpoints as we work to convince you of a much simpler, Oswald-focused view of events. We'll also bring in the paranoid ravings of other conspiracy loons. Naturally. It's not just crazies this time, though. We'll also evaluate sane, yet still apparently wrong, pro-conspiracists, including investigative journalist Dan Moldea, whom you might remember as the anti-conspiracist hero of our discussion of the RFK assassination last episode. While we're greatly outnumbered on this topic, we've got some of the heaviest hitters on our side. We're going to depend on two truly great comprehensive anti-conspiracy tomes. First, Case Closed by Gerald Posner, which emerged in the cultural wake of Stone's nonsense with a valiant attempt to set the record straight. This was, in fact, the first book that helped young Jesuits see the error of his Oliver Stone-believing ways. Also on the side of righteousness is the late Vincent Buliosi's 1,600-page doorstop of truth, Reclaiming History. Buliosi is most famous for his successful prosecution of the Manson family, and for the riveting Helter Skelter, his book detailing that cult's crimes, his investigation, trial, and conviction of the killers. 
Well, it turns out that back in the 80s, somebody at the BBC got the bright idea to finally give Lee Oswald his day in court, as so many conspiracy theorists have purported to do since Ruby's bullet stopped the wheels of justice in their tracks. Buliosi accepted the challenge of heading up the prosecution, and seems to have taken this televised mock trial as seriously as he would any real one. Reclaiming history is a distillation of the superb work he did in building an airtight case against Oswald. We're also going to heavily reference an excellent, more focused book by an author named Patricia Lambert. Her tome, False Witness, zeroes in specifically on the many, many, many sins against truth by both Stone's film and the man who inspired it, Jim Garrison. Actually, she implies that the latter sinned against far more than the truth, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Finally, a book that limbs the contours of the JFK controversy, as well as a matchless guide to the impact of the assassination and its various narratives on popular history, books, music, film, and all other aspects of the culture we currently enjoy or endure, is a slim volume called simply The Kennedy Assassination by Peter Knight. Okay, the scene is set, so listener, let's first examine what the unvarnished, evidence-based history tells us actually happened when Lee met Jack, and then another Jack met Lee. Drove out of love field Long and black with the reaper at the front wheel Jack is in the back in a pillbox hat Jack is nervous, he's trying to relax There may be no other person so completely devoid of talent, personality, or legitimate accomplishments whose life has been so thoroughly scrutinized as Lee Harvey Oswald. Before his big moment, Oswald's had been a peripatetic and formless existence, during which he made essentially no lasting friendships, dragged an innocent young woman and, eventually two children, into a violent and nearly loveless family life, repeatedly renounced both his native and adopted homelands, and completely whiffed in his constant efforts to make a mark for himself through radical politics and impetuous, ill-conceived schemes. He was born in 1939 in New Orleans, the city where so much meaningless assassination nonsense would eventually be centered, to a father who died two months before his birth and a mentally unstable and overbearing mother. Marguerite Oswald moved Lee and her other sons to the Dallas-Fort Worth area when he was five, and then to New York City seven years later. Amid these geographic dislocations, the Oswalds were constantly resettling into different apartments and housing situations as the matriarch's employment and romantic prospects waxed and waned. Lee showed early signs of emotional disturbance, which is understandable given his mother's volatility and manipulative, passive-aggressive attitude toward her nearest and dearest. A few asides on Marguerite Oswald, our anti-conspiracy authors, and even the conspiracy-curious Mr. Knight, agree overwhelmingly that Marguerite Oswald was a key influence on her son's eventual personality problems, from both a nature and a nurture perspective. Posner characterizes her as a domineering woman, consumed with self-pity, both over the death of her husband and because she had to return to work to support Lee and her other children. And while theorists, like the original grand old man of JFK conspiracy-mongering Jim Mars, tend to downplay the importance of the formative years with Marguerite in Oswald's biography. More accurate sources paint a picture of a woman who coddled her disturbed boy's behavior even as it gradually spiraled out of control. Another son, Robert, characterized her as being self-centered, focused on her own problems to the point that she couldn't truly see Lee's many and varied issues. But while ignoring his problems, she also told him he was smarter than other kids and reinforced his idea that he was better off staying at home and reading than going to school. 
Thus, the loner kid became ever more isolated. In addition to his chronic truancy, Oswald's childhood is filled with charming anecdotes. For example, a neighbor named Otis Carlson was in the living room of the Oswald's home when Lee grabbed a butcher knife and began chasing after one of his brothers. Lee hurled the knife at his brother in front of a startled Carlson, but it missed and struck the wall. Marguerite's response was that her boys sometimes got in scuffles and that the neighbor shouldn't worry about it. Testifying after the assassination, when one might assume that childhood signs like this would obviously take on increased retrospective significance, Oswald's mother, per Posner, could still find no fault with her son, despite the knife incident. She said, He did not use the knife. He had an opportunity to use the knife. But it was not a kitchen knife, or a big knife. It was a little knife. If she had faced it, said Robert, if she had seen to it that Lee received the help that he needed, I don't think the world would have ever heard of Lee Harvey Oswald. After the assassination, her behavior ranged from the nakedly self-serving. She almost always refused to give an interview or sit for photographs, unless paid. Marina, Lee's wife, said, She has a mania. Only money, money, money. Her son, John Pig, said in 1964 that money was her god. To the weirdly aggrandizing. Knight characterizes her testimony for the Warren Commission as both exasperating and grimly comic. For example, she suggests that her son should be given a full hero's burial in Arlington National Cemetery, where JFK was buried. Unlikely. So it seems like Lee's home life was a real nightmare. In meetings with child psychologists, he told them he had no close friends. Asked if he preferred to be around boys or girls, he indicated he hated everybody. Also, he apparently at one point mentioned to a high school acquaintance that the then-president was exploiting the working people and that if he had the opportunity, he would like to kill Eisenhower. It's unsurprising, then, that the academically moribund, frequently truant Oswald convinced his older brother to help him enlist in the Marines at 17 and get the hell away from his fraught home life. By this time, he was already obsessed with both Marxist theory and with his self-image as a vital, if not yet recognized, member of the radical proletariat vanguard. As you might expect, this attitude didn't exactly endear him to his fellow Cold War Marine enlistees, and he shortly gained a reputation as a commie simp crank. They called him Oswaldskovich. We know. It doesn't make much sense that the already Marxist Oswald would sign up for the Marines, the most gung-ho of all the American armed forces. According to Posner's case closed, Oswald had already decided to follow in his older brother's military footsteps before he experienced his political awakening. And, as we shall see, consistency in word or deed isn't exactly Oswald's trademark. Posner also notes that Oswald's unquestionable commitment to Marxism from the age of 15 or so is a real problem for the conspiracy theorists. Quoting Harold Weisberg, who weirdly tries to square this circle, Oswald's commitment to communism only makes sense when the possibility of his being someone's agent is considered. What the fuck? Regardless, Oswald's military service included stints in Japanese bases where highly sensitive U-2 spy planes were being tested, which of course would lead to no end of conspiracy speculation later on. But there's no indication that Oswald's security clearance, which never went above the lowest confidential level, would have given him any information on these or other sensitive topics. He also took a stab at learning Russian during his service, though he didn't do any better in this endeavor than he did with his previous academic pursuits. Claiming his mom needed him at home, he got a hardship discharge from the Marines in 1959. Then, completely ignoring her, he traveled as soon as he could to Finland, where he was issued a tourist visa to... Surprise, surprise. The Soviet Union. 
He immediately petitioned to become a Soviet citizen, going so far as to appear at the U.S. Embassy and ostentatiously renouncing his U.S. citizenship, raving to the U.S. ambassador that he would shortly be blabbing everything he knew about U.S. military secrets, that is, as noted, nothing, to whatever commie officials might want to hear about it. Apparently, he believed this hissy fit might prove his sincerity to the powers that be in Mother Russia. Later, when he learned that his application had been denied, he tried to kill himself in his Moscow hotel room. Worried that a dead U.S. Marine and attempted defector might screw up international relations, the Soviet authorities allowed Oswald to stay on in the country as a stateless person. But in spite of his expectations of fame, glory, and a prominent place in the forefront of the revolution, his mild renown in the USSR rapidly faded, his wish to attend Moscow University was denied, and he ended up working in a factory job in Minsk. He pledged his troth to a co-worker who turned him down in 1961, which likely prompted the impetuous Oswald to marry a 19-year-old student named Marina that same year, after a six-week courtship. Not a big planner, Arlie. In spite of his fully furnished government-provided apartment, a better-than-Soviet-average job, and a new wife and shortly a child, Oswald continued his lifelong habit of becoming discontented by society's stubborn refusal to treat him like a world-changing intellectual hero. By March of 1962, he had applied for and received permission from the U.S. to return with his new Russian bride and daughter. The Oswalds settled in the Dallas, Texas area, where Lee held a couple of different jobs, collecting unemployment in the interim. Unsurprisingly, the FBI started dropping in periodically on the family, as Lee's behavior over the past few years had made him a decidedly interesting topic for a country deep in the middle of a Cold War. He and Marina met with a group of Russian expats in the Dallas area. They all loved Marina. Lee? Not so much. Oswald maintained his pattern of drifting from menial job to menial job. During this period, he also continued to be just a titanic asshole to everyone in his life. With the possible exception of his daughter. You will also be shocked to learn, I'm sure, that he was a wife-beater. Anyway, he got it into his head to channel his political discontents, as well as his apparent need to inflict violence on somebody, damn it, into a scheme to kill General Edwin Walker. Walker was an arch-right-winger headquartered in the Dallas area who had been relieved of his command by JFK for distributing John Birch Society literature and trying to influence the votes of men under his command. Oswald used mail order and a false name to purchase his infamous Manlicker Carcano rifle for this job, and on April 10th, having cased the joint over the preceding days, took a shot at the general while the latter was seated at his desk doing taxes. He missed by inches because his bullet was deflected by the wooden frame that ran horizontally through the middle of the window pane. Oswald wanted to try again, but eventually Marina talked him out of it. Posner notes that conspiracists, including the notorious New Orleans D.A. Garrison, do not generally mention the Walker shooting because it makes it awfully hard to see Oswald as an innocent patsy in the later JFK assassination. In another interesting tidbit, Marina claims she also stopped Lee from leaving the house with a revolver when he heard Nixon was in town. Later that same month, Lee moved back to his hometown of New Orleans, and in spite of their ongoing marital struggles, the pregnant Marina and their daughter soon joined him. While there, he desperately tried to beef up his radical activist bona fides, creating his own unofficial branch of the Communist Sympathizing Fair Play for Cuba Committee, handing out flyers against the instructions of the National Organization, getting into fights with anti-Castro Cubans in the streets, and even participating in a televised interview and debate on the topic on local NBC affiliate WDSU, which, because we live in an age of technological miracles, we can actually excerpt right here, right now. This is the first of a series of Latin listening post interviews with persons more or less directly concerned with the conflict between the United States and Cuba. 
Tonight we have with us a representative of probably the most controversial organization connected with Cuba in this country. The organization, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The person, Lee Oswald, secretary of the New Orleans chapter to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Mr. Oswald, uh, if I may, uh, how long has the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, had an organization in New Orleans? We have had members in this area for several months now. Up until about two months ago, however, we have not organized our members into any sort of an active group. Uh, until, as you say, this week, we have decided to feel out the public uh, what they think of our organization, our aims. And for that purpose, we have been, as you say, distributing literature on the street uh, for the purpose of trying to attract uh, new uh, members. I that out you were one time asked to renounce your American citizenship and become a a citizen of the Soviet Union, is that correct? Well, I don't think that has a particular uh, uh, import to this discussion. We are discussing uh, Cuban-American relations. Well, no, it, I think it has a bearing to this uh, extent, Mr. Oswald. You say, apparently, that Cuba is not dominated by Russia, and yet uh, you, apparently, by your own past actions, have shown that you have an affinity for Russia and perhaps communism, although I don't know that you admit that you either are a communist or have been. Uh, could you straighten out that point? Are you or have you been a communist? Well, I had answered that uh, uh, prior to this program on another radio program. Are you a Marxist? Uh, yes, I am a Marxist. What's the difference? Well, the difference is uh, primarily the difference between a country like Ghana, Guiana, Yugoslavia... Uh, then, China, in September, Marina and daughter returned to Texas with their family friend Ruth Payne, while Oswald traveled to Mexico. Why Mexico? Because he saw it as his best option for getting to Cuba, which had now become the temporary socialist paradise of his dreams. He was stymied in this pursuit, not that Marina believed he would have been any happier had he managed to actually travel to Cuba. She was convinced that he would have hated it, that he would have hated any place he ended up. Where could Lee have been happy? Only on the moon, perhaps, she thought. Incidentally, the Mexico angle wasn't his first idea for joining Comrade Castro. According to his wife, he dreamed of taking over a plane mid-flight and using it as part of his defection plan, Posner elaborates. He trained on his own for days, running about the apartment clad only in his underwear, practicing leaps and trying to strengthen his legs and arms, things he considered necessary attributes to hijacking a plane. Junie, Marina whispered to her daughter, our papa is out of his mind. You will be shocked to learn that conspiracists, again, generally fail to mention this when painting Oswald as an innocent patsy. So, returning from Mexico, Lee was the beneficiary of some employment advice from that aforementioned family friend, Ruth Payne, who had tried to help the Oswalds over the preceding couple of years. She got Lee a hot tip on a job at a book depository. Honest, blue-collar work, paying $1.25 per day. Now, conspiracists will baselessly argue that Oswald's getting this job was integral to a conspiracy plot, whether because he was to be one of the shooters or because he was being elaborately set up as a patsy. But he had applied for numerous other positions in the area the same week that he got the depository job. Any one of these could have hired him, which seems weird if the plot hinged on his getting the book depository gig and no other. Also, he got the position before Kennedy's route from the airport to his speech was determined, which again seems like a lot of dice to roll for an intricate conspiracy. And here's where the stage of history just happens to coincide with the life of this sad, violent, self-aggrandizing man. As Posner rather succinctly puts it, Failed in his attempts to find happiness in Russia and the U.S., unable to make a living in America, 
Frustrated in his marriage and hounded in his view by the FBI, he was desperate to break out of his downward spiral. He had endured long enough the humiliations of his fellow Marines, the Russian and Cuban bureaucrats, the employers that fired him. Lee Oswald always thought that he was smarter and better than other people, and was angered that others failed to recognize the stature that he thought he deserved. Now, by chance, he had an opportunity that he knew would only happen once in his lifetime. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.